The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome in tune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. We're glad that you joined us today. In Tune is a two-hour weekly broadcast which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community and the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. Today, we're going to be talking to Nini Harris, an author and historian. She has a latest book, This Used to Be St. Louis. Nini, welcome to In Tune. We're glad to have you here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We love history on Intune, and I was looking through this book and all of these wonderful kinds of things. We talk about the Missouri Historical Society Library and Research Center, which used to be the United Hebrew Temple. That's a great building. You talk about Lambert, St. Louis, excuse me, St. Louis Lambert International Airport. You talk about the Patch neighborhood. You talk about the Grand Center Arts District. You talk about the Eli Walker Loft, some the St. Louis car places that are now loft buildings. St. Louis, St. Louis used to be the second mecca of automobile industry, second to Detroit. And just a lot of wonderful things in this book. 90 specific neighborhoods or buildings or areas that you discuss. How did you think about doing that? Well, it's because the city's history is so rich and so lush. I give walking tours. I love on these walking tours to show how each building in each block is like a puzzle piece in that remarkable history. You know, if you tried to do a comprehensive history of this city, it'd be like 15 volumes. It'd be very difficult. Oh, it'd just go on and on. But you can look at a building and explore its origins and its evolution and all the different uses and you get a puzzle piece of this remarkable city's That's history. That's an interesting way to put that. That's a really interesting way to put that. You talk about the Schlafly Tap Room, which actually used to be a printing company. Yes, and it's such a beautiful building. It was designed by a self-taught architect who then became director of our art museum. But if you look at the building, at the brickwork, it was like it was meant to be a beer hall. And when you go in, there is wood, all this abundance of wood you see. But then you realize there's steel all over the place, heavy steel framing because it had to hold and support printing equipment. It's just an exquisite building, and the the subtlety of the brickwork in that it, the brick they used had a texture to it that how it caught the light was particularly lovely. You know, we have a, a lot of, I don't shouldn't say we have a lot of, we have numerous wonderful buildings in our area, in the city of St. Louis. And the architecture and the design of those have been preserved. Unfortunately, we've lost many buildings, but recently, I would say over the last 25 years, there's been this resurgence of bringing them back or repurposing them, many as lofts, uh, many as other kinds of stores. I'm looking at Bailey's Range, mm-hmm. that, that particular building, great building, and if you've been down to Bailey's Range, you know that that's just wonderful view looking out the windows there. You know, you can go upstairs. The flooring's original. It just takes you back in time. And I, I imagine when I'm at these places, because I've been to several of these places that I mentioned to you, what it was like back then to be in the original building. Well, and that building is particularly significant because it dates to 
1889 to 1890, built for Southwestern Bell when telephones were this brand new concept. The building is in the Romanesque style. We had such a building boom in St. Louis from just after the turn of the century through the 30s that we lost a lot of those Romanesque buildings, but they were built with red brick, red terracotta, red stone, and all these great massive arches, and they look like castles. They do. And that building looks like one of those castles. But you can imagine with that building, this high-tech business, oh my goodness, to be a tel- a switchboard operator or a telephone operator... That was like, I guess, working for Bill Gates in 1890. Just an exquisite structure. It was then home of uh, an office supply company for many, many years. And today, it's a great place to get a a meal, and they have homemade ice cream, and it's a wonderful environment. It's built, looks like it's built like a tank. Well, that doesn't sound too lovely, though. It's It's a beautiful building. It's a beautiful building, but it's solid. But it's it's strong. Yes, that's that's a better word. And that's the thing about these things. When you grow up in the city and you grow up with these grand old buildings, you just can't buy a new structure. You can't buy a new home. You watch them built. You see some light frame and particle board with some, what is that, Tyvek over it and then vinyl siding. And you just have this sense of why would I spend money for something that fragile? Because these buildings... Oh my goodness, even small houses, you will see they were built so sturdy and they can be elegant and and beautiful, but their bones are so strong. Artisans, when uh, the Masons did their work back oh. then, it was it's just amazing to me. You, you couldn't afford to build a place like that today. You couldn't. When they built, they weren't building for 20 or 25 years. They were building for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Right. They had a sense of they were building a great city, and their lives were so much harder than ours. They worked much longer hours, challenging work situations, and yet, and yet, they built to last and built quality. And it's our job to appreciate it, at least to be thankful and grateful and maintain it. Well, and part of that is knowing these particular structures exist, where they are, what they used to be from your book. Tell our listeners how you got into this. You, you know, you've been writing and researching for a long time. Give us a little background of, of why this was such an interest to you. And, and was this uh, all the way back when you were in elementary and oh, junior high and goodness, high school? Did yes. you love history back then? <laughs> well, I had the good fortune of growing up where I live now in the St. Cecilia Historic District. It, it, it wasn't called a historic district then. Now it is. I live right uh, south of St. Cecilia Church. And the neighborhood, first, we were all taught to respect community and what we were given. And we had the good fortune of having a neighborhood. We were good fortune to have community and places we could walk. So we, we were taught to respect that, but we were also had lots of different generations on every block. 
unlike my peer group, I was born in 1952, and so much of my peer group grew up in nuclear families, in new subdivisions filled with nuclear families, whereas there were grandparents to be shared up and down the street. And they all shared their stories, and they all baked cookies. They all made, including my grandmother, oh, she would bake on Sunday morning. She'd go to 6 a.m. mass, and then she'd come home and go to the kitchen and start baking. And I knew if I got up and sat there at that bowl and listened to her stories, I got, after she was done with the chocolate cake, then I'd get to lick off the spatula and all of that before she'd wash it out for the next thing she was baking. There were all these warm, good sensations with sharing family histories and neighborhood histories. And I would hear the old German ladies talk about how they managed. And we were Irish. I actually learned how to really clean house from the German neighbors. I tell you, they knew how to make a house spotless. And the corners were always clean. Our house was always pretty chaotic. A lot of fun. But Irish, chaotic, wonderful. The German households, I'd just be amazed. And then the Poles, there were a lot of Poles. There were not many Irish there. But Poles and Bohemians, African-American community up the street, a lot of German-Romanians, a number of families that had were either headed by or had within them refugees or displaced persons from World War II. They taught us to respect everything because they had had nothing. A real melting pot. Oh, it was wonderful fun. The wiffle ball games after school were run by the boys from one family that the father was German and the mother was Italian. The basketball hoop was in the backyard of the Jewish twins. So if you played basketball, the Jewish twins were in charge. If you played wiffle ball ball after school, then it was the Italian-German family. And just a joyous mix. And people were different. This city was a patchwork of different cultures. It was the joy of celebrating them. And it's continued in a different way. St. Cecilia, which was founded by and built up by Germans, Poles, Bohemians. Now it's often called Santa Cecilia. Our Mexican fish fries are starting next week. So there you go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderfully rich just and so you got this history ingrained uh from from early on people stayed put and that kept the stories put too it kept the continuity cultural continuity so what was the tipping point for you to go out and start to write about these things and start to put them in a book oh my goodness well st louis public grade schools were fabulous and the we couldn't graduate from eighth grade unless we knew our St. Louis history. And you can always tell people from my era who grew up in the city versus suburban school districts because we had to learn city history, government. I'd say before I got through eighth grade, I was collecting stories and coming home and making notes. I was recording on paper the stories that my neighbors told me, but they were reliable stories. 
there was a difference in how we looked at history. I graduated from St. Louis U in 75. Mm -hmm. History was still a science, an imperfect science, but a science in that it was a search for fact and truth. Somewhere later, it became perspective. Perspectives, perspectives are a part of that science, but the perspectives came to dominate fact or search for truth. You know what? From the time at the mixing bowl, I guess I knew I was going to be doing this. You know, you talked about perspectives. I view that as, as I wear glasses, you wear glasses. Mm-hmm. Chris doesn't wear glasses. <laughs> no, he has glasses. There are his glasses. The okay. older we get, everybody wears glasses. <laughs> that gives you a different perspective. Sure. But when you're talking about the search for truth and facts, no matter what the perspective is, when you seek that out, then you can look at that and look at that in the context. We we talk about that on the show. Ellie and I talk about that, that why are we in some of the situations we're in locally here, nationally or internationally? And you can give it your perspective, but that may not be the accurate factual reason why or the truth of a situation. So it, it's peeling back all those layers of the onion, which I've mentioned to you earlier, and trying to find out what is the core reason this is going on or, or, or attempting to find out rather than just speculating. I, I kind of view sometimes perspectives or speculators versus really looking at the cause. That. I think that's an excellent way to look at it. A little distance helps Mm -hmm. also to step back and try to sort out all that's going on rather than immediate response. We're in an era of immediate response rather than gathering information, thought, and care. And there are always times in history that demand immediate response, but We've lost something in just not gathering information first. We're not giving a reflective response. That's that's a good way of describing it. We're, and we we also are more willing to. I'm not speaking for society here, but as as an observer, and observing people in on Twitter or mm-hmm. on Facebook, that people are more likely to. If I'm not engaging you personally in person, I'm going to tell you what I think right away. And, oh, gee, I apologize for that. I really didn't mean to say that, oh, somebody else had my Twitter account. You know, you get yeah. into a, a situation where you are going to end up apologizing rather than thinking first before you act. Or or maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe less said the better or maybe nothing said is better. What is interesting what you just said, though, was the apologizing. I just don't hear the apologizing. I see in these forms of communication, assumptions, accusations, conclusions, and lack of fact. I think we've lost ground simultaneously with both history, writing history, and in reporting, whether it be in newspapers, radio, television, whatever. We have lost ground because we have not pursued enough fact and gotten enough material before the reporting or the history writing is done. And many times the reporting that we will either read in print or hear audibly on the radio Mm -hmm. or watch on television is, this is a generalized statement, has become more about ratings and is more what I would call 
recreational kinds of things. I'm getting this for my entertainment purposes versus I'm getting information for knowledge sake to make some decisions and make some opinions. Now, you think back to when we were in Vietnam. At that point, we had a kind of faith in people doing research or trying to find out information. And when Walter Cronkite expressed a belief that we couldn't win the war in Vietnam, that made a tremendous impact because we had faith in that he was trying to search for a truth. That is something we don't have now and we didn't have years ago. If you look at the time leading up to the Civil War, media then was very similar to media now. It was agenda-driven in that I'm going to promote this cause, I'm going to promote that cause. In doing history, what I do is I, I look at all these different newspapers and I look for the fact between all these different opinions. It alarms me that today our media is very similar to the media leading up to the Civil War. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, Ellie and I have talked previously that many of the cartoons that were drawn about Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. were, they were horrible. Vicious. They were, they were very vicious. And, you know, you can look in, in Puck's magazine. They mm-hmm. they had a whole bunch in there. They were many in Harper's Weekly. Uh, they, were, they were there. They were in Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly. So all of these caricatures of how they were portraying him. He was basically stupid. He was a dunce. He was an animal. He didn't mm-hmm. know what he was talking about. He was a hick from Illinois and had no class or no reason to be in Washington, D.C., where the the learned people were. Some things, they don't evolve to a better, better way. No. Well, I think we did evolve in the early 20th century, and now we've fallen back into a not constructive media, and I see it also in history. Again, doing history and doing reporting have similarities in that they should be searches for fact and truth. So, for instance, I did a book on the Bohemian people of St. Louis. Bohemians, I wanted to know how many people, Bohemians, were living here in 1860. The Bohemians in the 1860 census in the compendium were lumped in with the Austrians because they were controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So I had to read 50,000 entries in the census of 1860. I learned a whole lot, but I read them looking for towns like uh, Pilsner and and Prague to know that they were, it would say Prague, Austria. So I had to go through and see where people were born. That makes sense. And, but that's doing history. It's spending hours and hours gathering information. There are no shortcuts. If you do shortcuts, well... There are no shortcuts. There are, not if you're going to do it right. And and you were doing real research. You were delving into getting the details, the devils and the details, and you weren't just, well, I see a couple of bohemian people out there, so I'm going to surmise that, you know, this is what it was. This, I always do primary source research, and I don't read contemporary books in St. Louis because I approach a subject 
fresh with, I try to be as blank a slate as I can and go back to original primary sources, the people who were there, the census records, the building permits, and gathering masses of information. And then the information tells you the storyline. That makes sense. That makes the information tells you the storyline. What, what a uh, what a novel approach. Well, versus today we have a narrative. Right, and now I need to find things to fit the, my narrative. That's why we're messed up. Not just that's why we have problems as a nation. That's what we do. So we're talking to Nini Harris. She's author and historian. We're going to be delving into her latest book, This Used to Be St. Louis, and some marvelous information. She has over how many books again you've written, Nini? Fifteen. Fifteen books. And when we come back after the break, I'd like you to name those books so people could get an idea of, uh, of what you've written about. And uh, we'll talk more about This Used to Be St. Louis. This is Arnold Stricker, Ventune. You're listening to KWRHLP, 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. We've been talking to Nene Harris. She is an author and historian, and we're getting ready to delve into her latest book, This Used to Be St. Louis. And before the break, I had mentioned to uh, Nene that uh, maybe she wants to talk about the names of her other books. So I will, I will give some of them. Downtown St. Louis, St. Louis Parks, which would be really interesting, Holly Hills, Unyielding Spirit, Bohemian Hill, you talked about that, Historic Photos of the Gateway Arch, that would really be interesting too, and A Most Unsettled State. What are some of those other titles that I'm missing? Well, my first book was A History of University City, and that was for University City's 75th anniversary of its founding in 1981. And then I did a history of the near south side neighborhoods around Tower Grove Park, a grand heritage. And the guidebook to that used they used to have uh, to Tower Grove Park. I did a history of a number of churches and institutions, like I did uh, a history of Tyler Place Presbyterian for its hundredth anniversary, and it reflected the whole history of the Shaw neighborhood and St. Gabriel's Church in Southwest City, which is a wonderful Roman Catholic parish. I did the history of Carondelet. Unyielding Spirit is a history of the Polish people of St. Louis. Okay. And I was particularly interested in the Polish people and the Bohemian people because these were two tremendous communities in St. Louis that had these very strong neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods were virtually erased by federal programs. Blocks and blocks of each community was raised to build public housing and highways. And the communities then were scattered because that's what happens. It was like a, a diaspora. And I didn't want those histories lost of those areas and how those people came here and started new lives and built communities and churches and and social organizations and how they raised strong, healthy Americans. You know, I was surprised to read exactly what you're talking about on in, in this book. 
about how some of the neighborhoods, especially when Interstate 55 was put in and where 44 and 55 are down by Soulard area and, and the neighborhoods that were completely wiped out. And like you said, people are displaced. People have to go somewhere else. Where do they go? What's the history of the area? How, how is that maintained? You know, a, a couple of these other things, I remember growing up like Mill Creek Valley. Yeah. And the original you have in here, you talk about Mill Creek, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of what Mill Creek pumping station, what what that was. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yes. If you are just south of Bush Stadium, there's Shoto Avenue and take it east across the railroad tracks through the forgotten warehouses. And there is the flood wall and the pumping station. The flood wall was built in the 1960s by the city, has protected our city beautifully, and the pumping station 1970, and it says Mill Creek Pumping Station. That is a key to understanding the history of early St. Louis because that tells us where the Mill Creek flows into the river. The Mill Creek, which was originally called the, the Little River in French, was the southern border of the village of St. Louis. I found in St. Louis Public Library downtown a fabulous institution and a great place to do research. They have a tracing of a map that was sent off to, I think, to the Library of Congress. I think that's where it went. But the tracing was done by Nora Berry Wayman in, in the early 50s before these maps were sent off. It shows that on the south side of that creek, at the mouth of the creek and, and the river where the Mill Creek is, in this map done in 1767 shows the Peoria Indian Village. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? So you have the settlement of the Frenchmen on one side, and at least that year, it's 1767, right across this creek is an Indian village. Indian's, Indian village settlement. And in 1767... Uh, Joseph Tyone, a French settler, dammed that creek. And he built the dam at the Bush Stadium Metrolink station. Oh, wow. uh, Ethan is Ethan Spruce. He builds, he dams it there, and that creates a pond. Now, it, it, he needed, you know, we needed power for a mill. That's why it was the other mills were all horse-powered. So this was powered by the dam, and it created a wandering pond that extended all the way from the Metrolink station to Union Station. I find it hard to comprehend just how big that creek was, but that the the pond, once it was dammed, that the pond was that big was pretty remarkable. And then Shoto buys the dam from Tyone, and it becomes Shoto's pond then. The city grows and grows, and you see people doing their laundry in this lovely pond and then light industry developing along it, and it becomes polluted. 1849, we have the cholera epidemic, and that pond was seen as one of the potential sources of the disease. So the pond was drained, and it left this big open flat area on the south side of downtown at a critical time when just prior to the building of railroads, which really built the tracks laid really in the 1850s. They, there's this big boom in, in mm -hmm. laying tracks. And so here the creek bed 
becomes the natural place and where the pond was to lay the railroad tracks. And that's why the tracks for all the railroads come in on the south side of downtown. Everything has a reason in our city. There's some path to how we got to where we are now. So where the the tracks are now, like where you would catch the Amtrak. Yeah. And actually where you catch the buses now. Yeah. Down by... 14th, the Civic Transfer. All of that in there was the Mill Creek, was was the the Shoto Pond area. That's right. This became this big artificial pond. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. And then Mill Creek, there was a Mill Creek um, housing complex too. Well, there was housing that went further west. If you follow the the corridor from downtown west, Mm -hmm. you have the area around just west of 12th Street to Union Station. In that area, in the mid-19th century, you see brick townhouses built up, something akin to like the Eugene Field House from from photos. Right. That's what it looks like. Some were a lot smaller, and then in one uh, a small area, you have beautiful uh, Lucas Place, and we have Robert Campbell House Museum there that recalls what that area was like. As the city grew, you have pressure to convert many houses to multiple units and then you have light industry built up and then from there west this is an evolution going west much farther west than than downtown you have this area developed as a mix of or it evolves into a mix of residential and commercial and much of that area is is called mill creek okay there was a large african-american community there and much of that area was raised for federal programs, too, that were supposed to save our cities following World War II. I have this theory versus fact here. Okay. Okay. Are you willing to share that with us? Oh, you're stuck here in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you look at radio shows, or you listen, you don't look at it. You listen to the old radio shows, and... You had all these different ethnic radio shows. You had the Irish, you had Molly Goldberg, you had all these strong ethnic programs. Mm -hmm. And they really celebrated the ethnic differences in character of all these different groups uh, that had made America their home. And then you look at 50s television we grew up with. And it's just so, I mean, everyone's leave it to beaver families and, you know, just nuclear families and very, without all this character and personality. I think something happened with World War II that made us culturally think we've got to get away from our ethnic differences, which in this country had been a source of great strength. But if you think of a generation well, two generations of young American men going off to Europe and being slaughtered in to end their waves of ethnic fighting. I wonder if it didn't affect them that they came back and it's like, we just want to be Americans instead of Italian bread and German bread and all the other things. And I, I think World War II had some sort of cultural and social effect on this country that was under the surface. 
Um, it's interesting. But that it affected us because we, after the war, all the different ethnic communities, African-American, Polish, Bohemian, Italian, Irish, that were leveled to create a more uniform America. Many things that have wonderful intentions have unfortunate side effects. You, you couldn't stay, stand up for Soulard, we can't let this neighborhood be torn down. Just in Soulard for building Highway 55, not even when we get to 44 in that interchange and all, 5,000 people were forced to move. Wow. 5,000 people displaced from one neighborhood. What does that do to the churches, the neighborhood businesses? It destroys networks, community. Churches closed. It was inevitable when you put a highway through a community. Well, and families, as you stated, when you grew up, you had multiple generations living together or living within proximity of each other. And now if a neighborhood is decimated, unless there is room to have an extended family with you, they may have to go some somewhere else. That's exactly what happened. I'll never forget, I was up at the Polish Falcons listening to what we now call a millennial, and the Polish Falcons was on St. Louis Avenue, and there were a lot of people right there where we happened to be who had lived in the Polish neighborhood that was raised to build Pruitt-Igo. The millennial who grew up in West County said, all these people fled, white flight, and I hurt for the people hearing her make this pronouncement out of her ignorance because I knew those people had loved their neighborhood and it had been taken by eminent domain. To accuse them of something when their neighborhood was taken by eminent domain was just, it, it, it was brutal. They, they didn't even answer. You know, they didn't say anything because what can you say when someone is so certain and doesn't have their facts. Well, it goes back to what you said about searching for the truth and facts rather than having a perspective on something, knowing exactly why things happened. I, yeah, I listened to so many families who were crushed when they had to move because of the interchange with 50, uh, 44 and 55 put up, uh, when that took blocks and blocks of housing off of Bohemian Hill and Soulard and all. And those people were crushed. They had family networks. They walked to church. They walked to school. They walked to the bakery. They, uh, many of them walked to work. I, they talked about walking to the breweries to work. And that was taken. It was all part of progress. There's another thing that goes on with that. You look at it, all that property is gone. All those people were paying property taxes. They were paying real estate taxes. Those that money's taxes, gone. The highway doesn't pay taxes. No. Housing projects don't pay real estate it, taxes. It also paid your earnings tax. It paid all these taxes, and then you and and then there's not enough room. Now, we never want to get to that really, well, I shouldn't say never. We could build up in different ways, but we keep using 1950 when we had, what, 850,000 people in the city as that's what it should have been. Well, since then, we've had huge swaths of the city removed for highways. That's a point I've never heard anybody bring up. We had Interstate 55 built. We had Interstate 44 built. 70. 
Interstate 70 built, right? 6440. That's right. And look at the swaths. And then all the property facing the highways was immediately devalued. Property from, as you look at, you're driving down what is now 5544 down by the arch. Everything from the highway to really the river is now industrial commercial, mm-hmm. which was a lot of times many warehouses, maybe even homes down there, even where the arch grounds stand. It was mixed up. Well, Ned, the arch grounds and and there has been some rather confusing things published about that arch grounds. I have not found evidence of numbers of people at all living there. And one of the people I heard speak was a lady who had grown up in the old rock house. Okay. Her parents ran, well, it had, the old rock house had been a rooming house for people who worked on the barges and were coming through on the barges. And then during, I think it was during the Depression, and I, I didn't refute this. I think it was during the Depression that they turned it into a nightclub, uh, an Italian family, and lived upstairs. And the woman talked about how there were no kids in the, na- there were no children in the area. So she'd go south to the Hooverville that was south of the Arch Grounds. And followed the river on and off wherever there was uh, a space of unused property. There was a Hooverville, not continuous, but kind of um, sections all the way to to Jefferson Barracks of Hooverville. Hooverville. What is that? That, Those were shanty towns built by people who had lost their homes during... Well, with uh, the the Great Depression. What many banks did in in many areas is they let people stay in their homes if they just paid interest. That was the only way the doors would be open. But a lot of people couldn't couldn't do do that. that. And a lot of them were renters who then had no money for rent. And they built shanties along the river. Okay. In other areas, but particularly along the river, and uh, people stayed there for decades. Hooverville, named after President Herbert President Hoover. Hoover. Okay. What a, okay. Yeah. Makes but, sense. Yeah, and the city really worked to, to create some health in these situations, like people in Carondelet, who had grown up in the Hooverville, told me that the city laid uh, some water pipes with drink to provide fresh drinking water in the Hooverville and Carondelet. Hmm. And so think of the disease we would have had if the city hadn't done that. Right. We've kind of jumped all over, haven't we? That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) I want to go back to downtown because one of the things I didn't remember uh, growing up, and it was still in place, and it was one of the impediments for getting the arch grounds really built, was the railroad trestle that was there. We mentioned the trains coming in and the old Mill mm-hmm. Creek and the old Shoto's Pond area. But Eads Bridge had a train that would come across and go into a tunnel. And I'll let you finish the story up. Okay. Well, Eads Bridge was built for trains. Correct. And before that, the trains came up to the levee on the east side. 
and then they had to go either either they unloaded the goods and brought them across the river on ferry or they put the train cars on ferry tracks and everything went into that those warehouses along the river the river which had been the source of our city's very existence for being it was it was the reason we were all of a sudden following the civil war has become an impediment to our economic future because the transition was moving on to railroad traffic, railroad commerce. And so bridging the river was a monumental undertaking to get those trains across the river. Many people thought it couldn't be done, but James B. Eads was an amazing man, self-taught, he stopped, what was he, 13 when he had to stop school and help support his family. Wow. A- and he studied at night. He worked as a clerk in downtown St. Louis, and the owner of the uh, uh, business had a private library and let him use his library, and he taught himself to be an engineer. And he figured out how to bridge that river. It carried, and it was to, again, carry... Trains. Trains. But... Forces, uh, commercial forces in Chicago, they were determined we not bridge the river in St. Louis because that would send more commerce to them versus to us. So they got legislation passed through in Springfield requiring that a bridge, if there was a bridge, it had a hookup with the north side of downtown because of where it would hook up on the east side. So you would have trains going into the heart of downtown on the north side and going through the center of the business district. That would have ended it. How can you have hundreds of trains a day going through a business district spewing smoke and sparks and fire hazards and all? James B. Eads comes up with the idea of building the tunnel through downtown St. Louis that is today the Metrolink Tunnel. Amazing. He was kind of like a Jules Verne in figuring things out. His vision. And he was unstoppable. But that explains why Chicago grew and grew and grew. And St. (laughs) Louis did not become the big metropolitan city that everybody thought it was going to become. Well, we had challenges with the Civil War. Right. We were basically, and this is really simplified, we were a Union City. In a state we were surrounded by Confederates. Well, we'll pick that up after the break. You're listening to Nene Harris. She's author and historian. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. Listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. We've been talking to Nene Harris about her latest book, This Used to Be St. Louis. She is an author and historian, and prior to the break, we were talking about some things that were going on between St. Louis and Chicago. We were discussing the Eads Bridge and how James Ede built the the very famous bridge that we know right now, and how he also built tunnels to link the trains to get to the Mill Creek, Shoto Pond area where the trains were all set up. But he did that because of legislation that was passed in Springfield to only allow trains to enter St. Louis or cross the river on the north side of the city rather than the south side, which they could have just gone right into this to the train area then. 
So we have this discussion prior to the break that Chicago then becomes this building city after the war, but Nini was saying, no, it was actually happening prior to the war, and expand on that a little bit. Well, St. Louis was a, uh, this tremendous metropolis critical to the Union surviving, but we were also in a very vulnerable place. Everybody wanted St. Louis, and Lincoln understood that, and that's why I got along with Grant, too. Lincoln and Grant understood you had to keep St. Louis with the Union to keep the Midwest and the border states with the Union. They wanted us. The Confederacy wanted us. The, uh, the secessionist governor wanted St. Louis. At the beginning of the war, volunteers in St. Louis, largely German and some Bohemian and a few Irish and French and other uh, St. Louisans, but largely Germans, volunteers called the Home Guard secure St. Louis for the Union, the city. But it is surrounded by lots of secessionists who regularly threaten St. Louis. Well, it's pretty much a Confederate state with the city being a Union controlled area. We kept the state with the Union, right? but it was with great struggle and lots of uh, division all over the state. And in fact, as late as 1864, we are threatened by a Confederate army. And this was a terrifying time because how many strong young people or young men were even in St. Louis at that time. A lot of them were off with Sherman fighting in the Union Army of the West. A number were off with the Confederacy, more with Sherman's army. How were we going to defend ourselves? Some Union troops went south of here and defeated, about 80 miles south of here, defeated the Confederate army. Pilot Knob. Thank you. Yes, you're right. And, and they turned away from St. And Louis. And they turned and they saved St. Louis. Right. But when you went across the street, uh, state, I read one journal written by Louis Fuse, who described going across the state in 1864 after this Confederate army had, had done its damage and all the burned uh, commerce and torn up tracks and all the damage they had done to other parts of the state. And they would have done it to St. Louis if it hadn't been for Pilot Knob. So during this time, of course, business feels uneasy in St. Louis. I write about this in my book, A Most Unsettled State, and that title comes from a letter about the situation here at the very beginning of the war. And this businessman is writing about how Business is moving up to Chicago because everything here is in a most unsettled state. Wow. And he says in the letter he's not sure we'll ever get that business back. Very interesting. You know, because I was of the opinion, you know, thinking as I read your book on the trains and listening to you, because I, th- that that's what really propelled Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really trying to keep us out of, there was this competition. They were trying to get all the businesses up there, and then they changed their river around to drain the way it did. They had uh-huh. problems with the Chicago River. And all of those things kind of really propelled them forward. And that became the train area where all the industry and the freight would go rather than to here. So I said, that's, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't, it, it, hadn't there was, known about that. Uh, well, 
But on the other hand, St. Louis was growing and growing beautifully. And so we continued to have rich growth with people from so many places coming here. Where I even found record of someone living here who was born in Siberia. I know that's really strange, but he was arrested. And that's how how you found out. (laughs) Yeah, because when they were arrested, the police kept track of the nativity of all the arrest. So uh, my people, the Irish, we were arrested lots. Let me assure you, we we cleaned up our act, though, because I've read uh, all the annual police reports that are available from the 19th century. And what we did was we became policemen in very large numbers and arrested ourselves in very large numbers. <laughs> uh, the Germans, and I have uh, one quarter that is an Eastern European mix with German grandmother, and they are part German grandmother, but they spoke German because they came from South City, and that was the dominant language. They There were always twice as many German-born St. Louisans as Irish-born St. Louises. But nativity of arrest, we outdid the Germans. We were there were twice as many arrests of Irishmen as of Germans. So mm-hmm. we we excelled. Now speaking about the Germans, I was reading in here about statements that were made to Germans about Deutsch people, and but then it got changed to Dutch. People now is this where the origin of Dutch a town? A scrubby Dutch and and Dutch town. Should it goes Deutsch back town? to the Civil War. Okay, or that era, and where it finally all came together for me, where I understood it, was reading Sherman's memoirs. General Sherman, about ten years after the war, writes these memoirs, and in it he describes all these German volunteers marching to what is now St. Louis University's campus. But in the spring of 1861, it was the site of the secessionist camp, the state militia that were secessionist. And they marched there, encircle the state militia, the state militia surrender, 800 of them, 7,000 volunteers my God, rising up, how, how remarkable, and saying we're going to be a union city where we came here to be part of America and we're not going to let secessionists break up this country, you know? So remarkable story of immigration there. But they're marching them back, and the secessionists line their path along Olive Street, yelling at the Germans, calling them the damn Dutch that day and spitting and hurling stones in the damn Dutch, they got it wrong. It was Deutsch. It was Deutsch. And that is the first reference I found in St. Louis history to Germans being called the Dutch. Interesting. And it stuck. I guess secessionists just couldn't get Deutsch right. So it, sh- so it should be Deutsch town rather than yeah, Dutch Yeah, it should town. be Deutsch and town. And scrubby Deutsch rather than the scrubby sc- Dutch. You got it. We should be the scrubby Deutsch. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Is it's just one of those bizarre twists in history. Well, well, that goes back to searching for the truth and the facts. <laughs> where, where did this come from? Where where did the where do the names and even the names you have some of that in in your book? Some of the names of the areas, the neighborhoods in St. Louis. You even go out to University City. You even go way out to 
Chesterfield. Chesterfield, yes. Even out in Chesterfield. We'll talk about that. There, where there were farms out there and uh, tenant farmers along Highway 40. And the area at Highway 40 right now in Lindbergh? Before it was glamorous, which was not that long ago when Smith Brothers Motel was there and they had a phone in every room. That's how sophisticated it wow, was. Wow, there you go. Yeah. The I love this one. Chris will love this. The moth repellent and urinal cake manufacturer. <laughs> I read that. I was like, what? what? I didn't know there was such a thing as a urinal cake till I toured the factory. And it's fascinating. There are these magnificent, huge brick factories just west of uh, Cardinal Glennon Hospital on 39th Street. And today they're the home of Willard Home Products, and they make all the different things you make with certain a certain chemical. So some of the things are like potpourri, some are urinal cakes, moth repellents, other cleaning items and things. The factories, these castle-like factories, were built by Liggett Meyer, which began as the St. Louis Company, and St. Louis was the center of tobacco manufacturing. That's hard to believe. Isn't it? Isn't it fascinating? In the 1920s, it starts, they start moving east. Okay. But it was, it, Missouri was a major tobacco producing state. All their chewing tobacco. You had Polish immigrants and Italian immigrants, the ladies on the hill. A lot of them worked at Liggett Myers. What is something that was a. I don't want to use the word aha, but wow, I never really knew that when you were doing the research on this book. That was like something that was like, I can't believe that's that way. Hmm. Hmm. I had clues. I'd heard lots of clues. And so in each case, I pursued a clue to see if there was reality behind it. Mm-hmm. More there were things I leave out because I find now we do not have the cultural continuity that we used to have. May I talk about the neighborhood south of Carondelet Park? That was an aha. Absolutely. That's an interesting one. May I say it? Let me show you it before I say it. So we're, we're, we're having to make doable. sure we don't have to bleep anything on the show That's here, folks. That's right. This is a, this is a, this is a family show. Yes, this is a family show. You know what I'm referring to then. I do. I read your book. Oh, well, then can I go ahead and say it or not? Well, I, I, I have to see it again because okay. I, and now I my can't hard drive spins it. and sometimes I can't find things. Okay. I was, uh, well, I loved following the baseball players and learning about the baseball players. Oh, shoot. Stan Musial and Red Shandy says they lived in the uh, area down by Carondelet Park. Francis Park. And I'm going to find this because this, this was an aha moment that I had been looking for for ages and now oh my goodness where maybe I should clean it up I'll look for that but I want to ask you this about the there was kind of a real tawdry area west of Union Station area oh well it was actually north and it was called Death Valley, Chestnut Valley, yeah, now, it was overrun by nev- gangs. Never knew anything about that. 
describe that a little more detail because it was an area that was kind of the what I would call the the hoodlum area or the honky tonks. Oh, there we go. There were honky tonks there, and it and when Union Station was right across the street, and you open up. Well, I found a poem about it. Let's see if I can't find that poem that describes it. Okay, Death Valley in the 1890s. We're not talking about Death Valley, California. No, we're talking about the gentle valley that's between 12th Street and 20th and is now a lovely ribbon of green through the heart of downtown. And this poem described the area in the 1890s. Bright lights, mechanical pianos, raucous laughter, hard liquor, reeling men, painted women, curses, flying fist, crashing furniture, hot lead, scurrying humanity, empty silence, black gloom, death valley in the 90s. And there was considerable concern, particularly with young soldiers coming to St. Louis or transferring trains in in downtown that they would go across the street to where the honky-tonks and the brothels were across the street from Union Station. The first plans to clean up that area started shortly after the turn of the century. The final phase was building of that magnificent fountain opposite Union Station, the meeting of the waters. Have you found it? I did find it. It's Boulevard Heights neighborhood, and she's referring to the part of south of Carondelet Park, which was commonly known as Cow Manure Hill. That's not what it was commonly known Well, it was as. commonly called something else, but on this program, we can call it <laughs> Cow Manure Hill. And, and, and Chris I is shaking his head, yes, otherwise we'll have the FCC on us. I used <laughs> to hear that neighborhood referred to for uh, the variation of manure consistently. No one knew why it was called that. And then when I was researching the area, I found that there was a big dairy farm there. It is a hill, and the Naxted Dairy moved there in 1889, and they grazed their cat, their dairy cattle on the hill and left a lot of manure, leading to the nickname for the neighborhood. In recent years, uh, they renamed themselves the Boulevard Heights Neighborhood. Oh, oh, oh. Boulevard Heights Neighborhood is much better than the Cow Manure Hill Neighborhood. That's quite a 180. <laughs> It's a wonderful neighborhood. It's just delightful. But the new people coming in had no idea of the the history of their neighborhood. So that one was a surprise for me. In recent years, I learned about the IBEW being founded in St. Louis. And that's one of the stories. That's fascinating. In the book. I didn't know that either. Yet they have like 750,000 members nationwide. And it all began on what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard. It used to be called Franklin Avenue. And it was in a boarding house operated over John Greb's saloon in 1891 that their constitution was written. Ten electricians led by Henry Miller and the IBEW found the building still had, it survived. 
They beautifully restored it. The IBEW has enriched our city by saving this part of history. And we recreated the old boarding house atmosphere on the second floor. It's a, it's a great-looking building. It's beautiful, isn't it's it? It's a great-looking building. Chris, did you know St. Louis was rich in all of this kind of history, you know, founding of IBEW here? I tell you, there is uh, so much information being presented, my head is spinning. <laughs> you know, I, I love this one because I've been down to the Ivory Triangle uh-huh. down in Carondelet, but the water fountain down there was actually a horse trough. Yes, and it was... Um, it has to stay a horse trough for fountain because the land was given to the city to serve as a horse trough. And if it's ever used as anything else, the land returns to the descendants of the Polly family. And Mr. Polly had a feed store across the street. On Saturdays, people went out, the farmers came in with their wagons and buying all their various stuff. And the last stop would be the feed, the feed store. When they got there, the horses would be thirsty. And so Mr. Polly had in the back a place where they could get water for their horses. And then some unsavory guys started to hang around his shop and offered to go through the shop and get the buckets of water for the horses for, you know, tips. And so he had these unsavory guys going back and forth through his shop continually, making a mess of everything. He came up with the idea of he was going to get all this traffic out of his shop and give that land for a horse trough that he owned across the street. And there's another horse trough in Lafayette Park. It's a planter now. It's near the statue of George Washington. I'll have to go down there and look at that. Yeah. It's much smaller than the trough in the Ivory Triangle. This book, what gives you the impetus to do this particular book or do the one on the arch or do the one on, you know, the Civil War and what was going on? What what is the thought process? Are these things just build within you and you look, I have to go down this path? That's it. They call you. They call you, you st- in, you're digging up one thing and you find something else and you just have to follow it. I loved following the baseball players because to f- it, when I stumbled upon that Red Shanding, Stan Musial, and Joe Garagiola were all big time Big time players. Players, and they're all living in the same area, and their kids are all walking to the same parish grade school, St. Raphael's. And for the men's club meeting, regular men's club of the parish meeting held in the school cafeteria, those three guys and the Globe Democrats bench warmer, Bob Burns, got together and discuss the upcoming baseball season. This is 1960. We would need a convention center to handle the St. Raphael's Men's Club. If that's the way it was now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it Just getting together for their, well, let's see, what do you think the Cardinals are going to do? You know, and that's at the, the school cafeteria. This is phenomenal. It's crazy. You know, folks, you need to, uh, we're going to keep talking to Nini, but I want to do a little commercial for her. Uh, it's N-I-N-I, 
Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S.com, NeneHarris.com, and you can find uh, this particular featured book, which is This Used to Be St. Louis, and also some of her other books. Uh, There's some that are out of print, and she's talking about maybe putting those back into print. One of the things we have not talked about, and we're going to do after the break, is talk about some of your uh, walking tours, some of the walks and talks that you have. She does walking tours of St. Louis, the downtown area, and I'm going to let her talk about that, but guiding us through the Gateway City, giving us really some background, and this is specific background, like we're talking about the Preston Art Glass Studio down on uh, Shoto. We're talking about the first St. Louis Country Club, which was in Clayton, which is now a what I'm going to call it, a subdivision in, in Clayton, a very prominent subdivision. We're talking about Maryland Plaza and what that building used to be across from those homes that are there that is now, I think there's one, there's a restaurant in, at the bottom of, of one of those places. But what these buildings used to be originally used to be the home of Saks Fifth Avenue. I didn't know Saks Fifth Avenue was down there in Maryland Plaza. You talk about Fort the Bellefontaine Park. You talk about the George Vachon African American Museum up on St. Louis Avenue, which I've driven by several times going to Crown Candy. You talk about uh, the uh, St. Louis U- University Museum of Art. Many, many, Big Daddy's Bar and Grill. Talked about the the Dutchtown neighborhood. All these things that are just incredible. Tower Grove Park, Lindenwood area. So a great, great book. And we want to get into what she does with her walking tours, what are called the walks and talks, and what areas she goes into, and some dates that are coming up related to those, and how people would get a chance to be on one of those tours. That's what we want to do when we come back from from the break, Nini. Okay? Was that okay with you? Thank you. (laughs) Okay, that sounds great. What do you mean, okay? Thank you, thank you. This is wonderful of you. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Thanks for staying tuned to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker. We've been talking to Nene Harris, who is an author and historian, and we've been talking about her latest book, This Used to Be St. Louis. So, folks, you need to check that out. And, and Nene, where can people find your book? Well, uh, that one you can go to Reedy Press, or it's at all the major bookstores in the area. Okay, you can. You heard that. It's a great book, folks. Uh, really fascinating read. What we're going to talk to her about this half hour are her walking tours. She gives some walking tours uh, throughout the metropolitan area. And and talk about some of those and some that are coming up on the, uh, I see the winter and spring schedule here on your website, which is nineharris.com, N-I-N-I-H-A-R-R-I-S.com. What are some of these uh, tours you're going to be giving? Well, every season I feature some part of downtown. So this spring... I'm doing skyscraper history in downtown St. Louis. St. Louis just has a phenomenal collection of historic skyscrapers. We're not that big a city. Like you said, we're not big like Chicago. But the first spiritual skyscraper in the world is the Wainwright Building on 7th Street. Correct. Designed by Louis Sullivan. You go one block to the north... And Louis Sullivan's third skyscraper has just been renovated as the Hotel St. Louis, and we're going to tour the hotel as part of this tour. And we did a show on that hotel. Oh, I'm so glad. It's uh, it's a great show, folks. you got to listen to that. So that's kind of... I'll get Nini to listen to that, and she she she's already been there, so she knows. But it's a wonderful building. Actually, I actually like it better than the uh, Wainwright building. Well, 
with a different use of it. Yes. It's, it's just very comfortable. The Wainwright is a state office building, and it's phenomenal. This building just, it, it's, it, the Gills have done it with such an inviting yes. interior. It is so comfortable and inviting. Yeah, we had them in, in studio here and talked about um, it, got a little tour down there. Wonderful. And, and unfortunately, the second building was the St. Nicholas Hotel, which was well, destroyed. Well, that, that was our third Lewis Sullivan building. Mm-hmm. Many, many decades ago, there had been a fire and they'd had to rebuild the top floors. So the top floors were already altered. And that building came down some years ago. But Lewis Sullivan does the Wainwright building. Then he does a building in Buffalo. And then he comes back and does what's the 705 or Union Trust building Mm -hmm. in St. Louis. So two of his first three skyscrapers are on one street in downtown St. Louis. Yeah, that's this crazy. This is phenomenal. That's crazy. Yeah, and then next door you go west and you have the wonderful chemical building that now there are proposals to renovate that. And that was actually done after the Union Trust building a few years later by a competitor, a Chicago competitor of Lewis Sullivan, Henry Ives Cobb. But it is it just has such a, a marvelous different feel to it. Oh, it, it's wonderful. And then just right nearby, we have in our postmodern style, we have the Metropolitan Square building mm-hmm. and its roof line with those steeply pitched green roofs. That's meant to complement way over on Grand, the Furman Deloge mm-hmm. hospital roof line, that kind of French Norman roof. And the murals in that building are wonderful. The artwork in the building is fabulous. In the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Square. Square. Okay. Yeah, okay. from 1980, is I think it's 84 it was completed. or, okay. or I'm sorry, a, a late 80s. And uh, so we just have skyscrapers of all these different styles, including the 1010 Pine Building, which is New York-style skyscraper with the Art Deco setbacks. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be looking at this whole evolution of the American skyscraper as begun in St. Louis. Here in St. Louis. Yeah. So when you do this, do you... Shuttle to one place, you meet at oh, one no, place. Oh, no, we walk. You walk. We walk. These are all walking. I do bus tours through Direction St. Louis on different themes, but we walk. And we walk. We take lots of breaks because you got to because we walk for a long time and then leave time afterwards because we always find a little eatery and then... Uh, People have lunch together and discuss what they've seen. So do you go into the buildings at all? Oh, uh, okay. like in downtown, we go into a lot of them. We It, it varies each time. Mm-hmm. I try to feature different buildings that we see the interior of. I set it up with a new hotel that we're going to see that one this time. We're going to see, well, we're going to see the outside of the arcade building, right. which is recently done. You've got the Paul Brown. You've got this, again, this whole evolution of skyscrapers. Now, I have to admit, I do not like the international-style skyscraper. I just don't like him. I, oh, I just The don't. international style. Give me a, so oh, I know what you're talking golly. about. Oh, golly. Okay, you're going up market. 
uh, not to uh, just west of of the ballpark Hilton. Okay. And you've got the wonderful Laclede Gas Building or Spire Building that was built by General American in mm-hmm. 1977, and it's a whole like a jumble of of geometric shapes. And then just west of that is this tall, dark cla- glass building. It was originally built in 1981 by I think it was Centaur Plaza. I'm sorry. I know people like them. I call them the Darth Vader buildings. They just look foreboding to me. I love our St. Louis historic skyscrapers that have all these different shapes and mm-hmm. designs and terracotta and brickwork and stonework. That thing could be in Clayton. I mean, that's yeah, how ugly right. it is. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, oh. that's okay. That's okay. Okay. It's your opinion. Remember the views and opinions expressed <laughs> oh, by the... Oh, opinions the, the, versus fact. There is, I'm sure there are people who love the skyscrapers in Clayton. And that's okay. How long are these uh, tours normally? Hour and a half, two hours? So people They're can kind of judge. They're billed as two hours. Okay. You do your two hours, and then if you want to come for the rest, you just get bonuses. Oasis offers all the walking tours. We keep them at 15 people. Mm-hmm. When the sessions fill up, we open new sessions because I don't want to do cattle calls. I want people to hear. I want them to be in front of the building I'm talking about. I don't want the whole time spent coming in and out of a building. And so we keep them small. And we, like I said, we just keep opening new sessions so that we can accommodate everyone. Okay. And how how much do these cost? Oasis charges... This is an older adults education program, but mm-hmm. now they've opened it up to people from of all ages because people have been sneaking in who were younger, <laughs> which is a wonderful problem. I think they charge twenty nine for them. Okay, and we go for again two hours, and then we'll have breaks, and then we just keep going. We we walk. It's like a death march. So, so if you folks, if you want more information on those, you can go to www.oasisnet.org backslash STL. That's right. And that's on NeNe's website, which is neneharris.com. So you do Landmarks of Our Lives, which are postcard views of St. Louis from World War One to the 1970s. You do an Old North St. Louis tour, which would be very interesting. And you know where we end up with that tour. It, it has something to do with candy. I think so. Crown candy. <laughs> and and uh, yes, this, uh, it doesn't matter how long we walk. On many of the tours, we end up taking in more calories than we've burned off. What? That's what happens. Lunch is optional again. And, and continuing with us, we just keep going. On that tour, we are going to see a wonderful house on Hebert that has been beautifully restored. Now, the kitchen and bathroom are renovated, but the living room, the parlor, the dining room are restored in that all the woodwork, the mantles, everything is authentic. A wonderful house from the 1880s. That's cool. You have a, a walking tour of the hill? This is going to be new, and we're looking at the whole culture of the hill, the evolution, what made that community so strong when it was so impoverished. Hmm. You you listen, you know, I've read Joe Garagiola's memoirs and, and Shane Deans and all in New Zealand. What's clear is that though times were really tough on the Hill, community 
made life much richer. This strong community can help people who are on the edge of poverty, mm-hmm. and it helps them be middle class. You know, like the the sports programs on the Hill that were run by the South Side YMCA, and the coordinator was, they called him Uncle Joe, and he was actually a, a bohemian. <laughs> they kept those kids involved. They kept him so involved. And word traveled. You know, if you got in any trouble, oh, Garagiola could tell us stories about that. If you got into any trouble, word got back to your family. And if you didn't go to confession on Saturday, you weren't going to be playing ball. You know, that's how it went. So so we're going to look at it culturally and how the neighborhood's evolving because there is so much investment on the Hill now. It's very exciting. Right, right. There's a lot of things going on there. So you've got these. Uh, they they go on uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, it looks like, generally, and then they are in the morning time. That We start in the morning. And then you end up so you can at least have some lunch somewhere, like yeah. uh, at some uh, very good uh, bakery or uh, restaurant on the hill. We'll find some place. We'll manage. <laughs> we'll think, find food. There's, there's not very many places no, on the hill to go it, eat. You at. will not go hungry. <laughs> there will be places. Oh, my. So this has been great. It's been a great time talking to you. You've got these walking tours. You have the number of books that you have. You've received some awards also for some of the books that you've uh, written. Uh, Your book on Holly Hills was selected to receive an award from the Missouri Preservation in in 2012. You got your, your first history lessons, you said, from your grandmother who made chocolate cakes from scratch. Before you went to Mass on Sunday mornings? After Mass. After Mass, okay. No chocolate till after Mass. No chocolate mass. till after Mass. Okay, there you go. And what a, what a great, great opportunity to learn from you today. Well, thank you. Thank you. I feel like I'm a vehicle for all these people who shared their histories. And that's a great way to put that because we, we are better when we... There's statements that we've made previously on this show. There's more that unites us than divides us in locally and statewide and nationally, even internationally. But we don't know why things are the way they are unless we know what the truth and the facts are Mm -hmm. of where we've come from. And when we can know those things, as you have written in this book, this used to be St. Louis and your other books, it gives us real insight into explaining some of the situations we deal with today. Well, and you just said what what John McCain, or paraphrased what John McCain said in his last book about we need to look at what like what makes us Americans. Celebrate all our cultural differences, but there's more that unites us, and, and we have to look at that. We right. have to look at what we share and, and how, we, how we share it. That's correct. So, Nini Harris, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back when your when your next book comes out, <laughs> or, or taking some of these walking tours with you. That would be very fascinating. So thank I you hope very you much. Can.